right, so last week we talked about part two of the appointed times, or the Hamoyedim. That's all it means, is God's appointed times, or seasons. So in Genesis 1, I can't remember what verse it is, but it talks about the seasons. There's only two places the word Hamoyedim is in the Bible, and it's when it talks about the uh, seasons, that God, the, the, the days of the week, and the signs in the heavens for seasons and so forth. And then it talks about when, uh, or it, the, the word Hamoyedim is used later when the feasts are are established. So appointed times is really all it means. So we talked about that. Uh, we talked about, we're, uh, by the way, tonight is the last of this little series within the series about the, the Hamoyedim, the or the Feast of Moses, Festivals of Moses. We talked about our Jewish roots as Christians. Um, Anti-Semitism is bad. Uh, we talked about church history. Uh, we talked about the first biblical mentions of bread and wine, how it goes way, way back to Melchizedek, um, as the earliest mentions anyway. <clears throat> we talked about first fruits and weeks last week. And we talked ultimately about how uh, we've covered the first four feasts. We're going to cover the last three tonight. Giving us a total of seven. What a number. So, <clears throat> and we, again, we talked about how these feasts foreshadow Jesus and how he ultimately fulfills them. Well, the next three feasts are kind of different because they're in the fall. And we haven't, they haven't really, we don't believe, been fulfilled yet, ultimately. So... Um, we'll talk about that. We're going to go into some eschatology or end time study. Um, so that's what our goals for this session are, is to have an understanding of the last days or what we call eschatology. You might hear me say eschatological. Hopefully not. That's kind of a hard word to say, but that's basically just means the study of the last times or the last days. We're going to talk about the fall festivals of trumpets, the Day of Atonement, which is probably the most solemn of all the feasts, because it's dealing with sin, and of course tabernacles, or booths, or Sukkot, or we'll, we'll talk about the different names of them. We're going to talk about how these festivals, which are currently unfulfilled, might, and I highlight that, might be fulfilled. So everything we talk about tonight uh, as far as future stuff is future, so we haven't experienced it yet, so therefore we are not 100% sure how it will be fulfilled, but based on scripture we can make educated guesses, and it's kind of fun to talk about. I have friends that will say, you know, I don't know anything about the end times, what happens is going to happen, and that's true, but it's also fun to study it so we can, you know, obviously be prepared maybe, or uh, teach others. Uh, we don't want to just go, well, it'll happen, I don't really care what happens or how it's going to happen, but if we study it, we'll, we'll learn more about maybe who's going to be in these last times um, and what specifically is going to happen, how long it's going to last, stuff like that. So, uh, And we're going to talk about how all the homoiodine fit together. And i got a lot of pictures for everyone tonight. And of course, all yours are in black and white. I'm sorry. You can tell the church to get a color printer. It's got a new Yeah, it's got a new black and white or is it black and white? Or is it? Yeah, is yours still black and white? Okay. So, figure 7-1, of course, shows the picture of the menorah that we've been looking at for the last couple weeks. 
Um, first week we talked about those two first feasts, and then last week we talked about the most recent two feasts, so Passover and of course unleavened bread and the feast of first fruits are all three fulfilled in the same, you could say in a single week. So we've got the Passover fulfilled at Jesus' uh, sacrifice, unleavened bread the seven days following, feast of first fruits of course was fulfilled when he rose from the dead. And then, of course, Pentecost was fulfilled 49 and 1 days later, or 50 days later. Scripture says 49 and 1 days. Um, but do the math, that's, that's an easy math problem, 50 days. So, And then the next three feasts are festivals, are, um, as far as we know, unfulfilled. So I've got some little question marks down there because we're going to talk about maybe this is how it will be fulfilled because, because of some characteristics of the feast. Um, but we're not sure. And then because we got we got some more uh, diagrams and pictures for you, uh, just some information about kind of how others see some, or the different views of the end times. Um, we're gonna, we got some Hebrew letters we're going to talk about. Acrostics. How many know what acrostics are? Um, if you're like me and you do this kind of thing when you get really bored and you're like looking at a school assignment or something and you've got words and I don't know why I was going to write, I'm not going to write anything. Uh, I was just thinking about it, I'm just picturing it, but I could be like JB and just write stuff. But um, when you take words and you take the first letter of the word and you spell things with it, that's acrostics. So we're going to talk about that and how uh, in the Jewish culture acrostics are really, uh, especially when they read the Hebrew Bible, uh, acrostics are very common and um, they, they, they create some interesting uh, um, aspects of the Bible. So <clears throat> so we're going to do an end times review, of course, and if you, if, you're, if you know everything about eschatology, we're going to talk about it again. If you don't know anything about eschatology, hopefully you'll learn something. Um, if you know a little bit about eschatology, great, no problem, doesn't matter, we're going to talk about it. It brings up some fun conversations, uh, raises a lot of questions, of course, because it's future. Um, it's also refers to, uh, end times is referred to as eschatology, the study of last things. See figure 7-3 for the four main views of the end times. So if you want to look at that real quick, we'll just real quickly go over that. There are four main views of the end times. If you're wondering which one we are, we'll figure it out pretty quickly. So you got dispensational premillennialism, historical premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. So dispensational premillennialism, that's where we are, okay? That's what this Stillwater Bible Church follows is the dispensational premillennialism. Will Jesus return physically in all of these? Yes. Jesus will come back physically as a person, as he is. When will he return? Well, that's that's where they kind of differ. you got a seven-year tribula tribulation in the first two types of premillennialism, um, and he will return before that, or before the millennium, after the tribulation, before the millennium. And then, of course, an amillennialism, which means literally no millennial, no millennium. The A is a Greek way to say there's, it's not, um, yeah, like agnostic. It means not gnostic and, you know, stuff like that. So, <clears throat> uh, postmillennialism, of course, means after the millenniums, which that's when they think Jesus, people that believe in postmillennialism means that they believe Jesus will return after the millennium. So... Uh, do the rapture and the second coming occur at the same time? No, in, a, in our view. In the other views, yes. Which is kind of interesting because that means all the church leaves and then comes back, if you believe in any of the other views. 
So if you believe in dispensational premillennialism, church is raptured, it doesn't go through the tribulation, church returns with Jesus after the tribulation. Okay? It's a seven-year wedding feast, basically, and we talked about the wedding before, which that fits in times. Um, will there be a great tribulation? Yes. Uh, historical premillennialism? Yes. Um, according to amillennialism, the tribulation occurs any time Christians are persecuted or wars and disasters occur. So they think... It's going on right now. It's already happened. It comes and goes. Um, and of course, post-millennialism, the tribulation is the conflict between good and evil since Jesus' death and resurrection. So we talked about how historically the church has, based on some of the policies that the early church uh, adopted, um, when you change a view, you have to change other views. Okay, so if you change a tr uh, the way you interpret something, which is called hermeneutics, but if you change the way you interpret something, not everything's going to fit together the right way, so you've got to start changing other things too, and then before you know it, you've changed the entire scripture, and that's kind of affected uh, a lot of the churches that don't believe in the millennium. If you don't believe in the millennium, then you got to change other views and so forth, So, and along with that comes a very distorted view of the end times. So including where, uh, well, Jesus isn't really going to come back. That's, that's some views, and so therefore, what does all this stuff about the kingdom mean? Well, it's all allegory. Um, he's, he's just reigning as king in your hearts. He's not really going to actually set up a kingdom and so forth. But as, of course, uh, dispensational premillennialists, it's a big word, uh, we believe that he will physically, literally return and set up a kingdom. Uh, will there be a literal thousand-year kingdom or millennium? Yes, after the tribulation, Christ will reign for a thousand years on this earth. Then he will set up a new heavens and new earth and eternity. Um, yeah, as you can see, both in historical premillennialism, pre same thing. And of course, amillennialism, no, there's no millennium, refers to the reign of Christ in the hearts of his believers. And then, of course, postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is not really a very popular view because one of the characteristics of that view is that everything will get better and 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 it's going worse 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 you know so obviously it's not a very popular view millennium refers to a period of peace when the gospel reaches all people and then everything's just going to be happy and everyone's going to hold hands and that's kind of the view of the post-millennialism uh who is saved oh that's easy christians only that's that's what everyone agrees on uh, is the modern state of Israel relevant to the prophecies in Revelation? According to our view, yes. Israel is still God's chosen people for service, um, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of what they believe in. Not all Jews are unsaved, and any Jew can be saved, by, just like any uh, non-Jew can be saved by, by faith in the Messiah. Um, but according to these other views, his, uh, Israel has been replaced by the church. That's an unfortunate view, and it leads to a lot of other things like anti-Semitism and just general, just bad stuff. And it doesn't fit. And uh, of course, then you have to just explain who are the um, who who are the twelve tribes of Israel in Revelation. The hundred, you know, um, so stuff like that just doesn't fit. So when was this view most held? Well. Uh, our view became popular about 1860, has increased in popularity. The early view of the end, uh, for the historical premillennialism, the earliest view of the end times emerging at the end of the first century. 
Uh, amillennialism popularized in 1400, right after the church really became political, uh, continues to be accepted today. And then, of course, postmillennialism may have been popular as early as 8300, not as popular today because it obviously doesn't fit history or modern. Yeah, nothing's gotten better, really, so to speak. So um, it just keeps getting worse. So, all right. So that's a real quick 10,000 foot view of the end, views of the end times. So. Alright, so based on Hebrews 1-2, the last days, or what we call the last days, or the end times, started shortly after Jesus' accomplishments. So we've been in the last days for approximately a better part of 2,000 years. Okay, So the last day, you could say, well, we're in the last days. Well, technically, yes. We've been in them for a while. And... Um, but it's starting to, I mean, things are just getting gradually worse and worse and worse and worse. And you, you can't say we're not getting closer because technically we are getting closer every day. So we just don't know when those days officially begin, but, or at least like the seven-year tribulation. So <clears throat> uh, the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord many times. And I have a lot of scripture references there. You can go study those yourself in your private time. We can read them all right now, but we don't have the time. Read them and study them. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so the kingdom. The kingdom is, of course, the literal kingdom that Jesus will return and set up on this earth that we're on right now. It's a very interesting time. I can't wait personally for it. It's going to be, I, I just don't, I don't, it's going to be really interesting to have Messiah in here on this earth himself. I don't know how, I mean, it's just, there's a lot of questions raised by that. It's just it's going to be really interesting. There are over 1,800 or 1,800 Old Testament references to the event. The kingdom is a very, very popular topic in the Old Testament. But yet a lot of people, I say a lot of people, there's a view that, of course, there's no millennium, there's no kingdom. It's just liter It's just not literal, it's allegory, it's not a real thing. But there's so many details about it. And if the millennium doesn't happen, then the Davidic covenant where David, the, the, the ultimate son of David, or Jesus, can't sit on the throne. So, on a literal throne, which he will. Uh, there are over 300 New Testament references to this event. Jesus will take the throne of David according to Luke 1, 26-33. And in Matthew 6, 9-10, the what prayer? What is it called? The disciples' prayer. Popular, it's traditionally called the Lord's Prayer, but of course, this is, how, this is the Lord teaching the disciples how to pray, so technically it's the disciples' prayer. We are to pray for the what? Thy kingdom come. But not literally. Does it say that? No, it says thy kingdom come. The kingdom is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. It's referred to as lasting how many years? One thousand. And if you study the numbers in Scripture, does God mean what He says and say what He means? I mean, when you see numbers laid out, does He just say, well, you know, 100, 150, something like that? You know, a thousand years just means a lot of years. No, he's literally 
I mean, he's specific. I mean, he's a very specific, thorough, literal God. Um, <clears throat> it's referred to as lasting a thousand years in Revelation 20, verse 2. Verse 3. 4, 5, 6, 7. Sorry, I'll just, I'll just throw it out there. 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. So if you want to go back and read those later, it's pretty clear that it's a thousand years. So, not a lot of years. I mean, that's a lot of years, but... And uh, before I go on, um, we need to understand that imminency, what does that mean? Does anyone know what imminency means? It could happen when? Anytime, before I even finish the sentence. Okay, it didn't happen yet, but, you know... Yeah, it could happen. It, yeah, we, we don't want to think, well, it, it could happen, you know, eventually. Yeah, sure, but we need to understand that it, Jesus could return at any moment. So, um, and I'll throw my, my, uh, my little statement out there that that means if you have that family member, that coworker, that friend, that person that you've had on your heart that you need to talk to the Lord about, that could be the one person waiting. So, you know, <clears throat> before, you know, the... Go get him, son. That's what that's Who knows what that's going to say. But. All right, so. Many scriptures seem to hint that the church will not endure the 70th week of Daniel. And if you want to write in parentheses tribulation, that's, that's the 70th week or the last week or the last seven years. In the Daniel's prophecy, it's weeks of years, not literal seven-day weeks. It's seven, you could say seven-year weeks. So, <clears throat> it's actually 70 Shibuyam, which means 77s. And so, um, it's kind of like saying, a, if I say a dozen eggs, it's 12 eggs. It's kind of like, that's how they do it in, in, in these Hebraisms or Hebraisms. Um, a, a 77 would be a 77s. So, yeah, it's just, it's just the way they say things. It's referred to as the time of Jacob's distress. What was Jacob renamed to? Israel. So it's referred to as Israel's distress in Jeremiah 37, 30 verse 7. Gabriel said in, 920, in Daniel 9.24, Gabriel's the one giving the Daniel prophecy, uh, this specific prophecy, that the purpose of the prophecy is for your people and your holy city. So he's talking about Daniel's people, the Jewish people, because Daniel is asking, what is left of my people and my city? And Gabriel, after a very strange journey to get the message to him, where he's battling Prince of Persia, he just gives him a little story, like, by the way, I've been fighting this Prince of Persia to give you this message, but Daniel prayed the whole time, and we talked about what would have happened if Daniel stopped praying, you know? So maybe he wouldn't have made it, or it would have taken longer. But <clears throat> it says that uh, the prophecy is for, again, your people and your holy city. So it's for the Jewish people, and what's the holy city? Jerusalem. Because at the time that Daniel's praying this, the city is destroyed. It's in ruins. One of the many times it's been destroyed. So 1 Corinthians 4.18 tells Christians to be... Comforted. Comfort one another with these words. 
That's our memory verse, by the way. I gave you a real easy one this week. Is it First Corinthians or First Thessalonians? Oh, sorry, Thessalonians. Yeah, and I actually wrote Thessalonians. I'm just, I don't know why I said Corinthians. Sorry, First Thessalonians 4.18. Tells Christians to be comforted. How can you be comforted if you're about to go through literal hell on earth? <clears throat> and it's the worst time in history. So we haven't experienced anything as bad as what it's going to be like. When we talked about this. It's going to be worse than even World War II, which was considered probably one of the bloodiest moments in history. So um, Enoch, a Gentile, was removed from the earth before the flood. We talked about how Enoch is possibly a picture of the church. Um, of course, he was Gentile. There were no Jews yet. Um, he was removed from the destruction of the earth, which is a picture of, of course, tribulation on earth, um, before the flood. So he's a kind of a picture of a rapture in a way. So and we had some interesting questions raised, of course. Did he die? Because Jesus is the first fruit from the dead. So we really don't know what happened to Enoch, but... We'll find out one of these days. Okay, during the threshing floor scene of the book of Ruth, the Gentile bride, you can highlight Gentile if you want, is that the feet of the kinsman redeemer. So, book of Ruth, of course, is a picture of the church, completely anyway. It's a, it's a, there's a lot of stuff going on in the book of Ruth, but it's a, overall, you can see it as a picture of the kinsman redeemer, Jesus, or Boaz in the, in the story as a picture of Jesus. His Gentile bride, Ruth, of course, is a picture of the church. <clears throat> she is with the kinsman redeemer during the threshing floor scene, which is a picture when there's a scene like that, it's generally attributed to the tribulation period. So she's not in the threshing floor scene, uh, in the threshing floor, she's with her husband, or the bride is with the husband. So you could say the church is with the Savior. So, um, how can the church endure this time period if it is returning with Jesus in Revelation 19:14, which of course talks about the church of the saints riding white horses? Hope you all know how to ride a horse. I'm sure they'll have. I wonder if we this. Something I don't. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I have a lot of weird questions when I think of that stuff. Someone say something. Oh, seven years to figure it out. Yeah. There we go. It's actually not hard. I've ridden horse. Yeah. Now, if it's bareback, that's a that's horse. That'll be interesting. All right. So, how can the church? So, if the church is going to go through the revelation or the seven-day tribulation, let's say we're we're going to go through that, and then he raptures us and says, "Okay, you're with me. We're going to have a real quick wedding feast, and we're going to go right back." You know, that doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really fit. In addition to the fact that. The entire period is focusing on Israel. The entire Daniel prophecy is about Israel. And the last seven years, if it was about the church, I mean, the church isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament, but those last seven years are included in that 490 years about Israel. So it's only, it, only makes, it only fits if it's about Israel. So the last seven years focus on Israel. Um, there's a lot of other scriptures that hint at that. Uh, we won't talk about them all tonight. But <clears throat> all right. So questions before we move on. Those are really, really, really ten thousand, twenty thousand foot overview of the end times review. So 
again. So to get, if you want to look at that timeline real quick, we can just kind of cover that before we go on. Uh, figure 7-2. So right now we're on the far left. Well, okay, sorry. We're in the church area, not the far, far left. Old Testament, before Jesus, Jesus comes. He, he pays for sin, teaches for about three, three and a half years. Pays for sin, dies on the cross, pays for sin, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven. Church starts on Pentecost about 50 days later, or 50 days later. Um, and we've been in this church period for the better part of almost 2,000 years. Um, at some point, this rapture will occur, which Jesus will take all of his church with him, meet in the clouds. So if you have the fear of heights, probably won't by then. Um, <clears throat> at which case, the seven-year tribulation will some... Some people ask, when's the seven-year tribulation going to begin? It could be the day that the rapture happens. Uh, we're going to talk about that. It, there's there's some theories out there, or hypotheses, I should say. Um, hypothesis, a hypothesis, a hypothesis is not a theory. If you say theory, it's actually been tested. And anyway, um, so a hypothesis is just a, a conjecture is another word for that. So it's an idea. Um, but seven-year tribulation, at which case the church is in. Heaven with Jesus, the judgment seat of Christ happens where he rewards all the believers for the, the, the things they did on earth. Um, second coming after the seven year tribulation, the, the revelation talks about, and Zechariah and other places talk about how the remnant of Israel will finally believe, the nation as a whole will believe in the Messiah, the right Messiah, Jesus. They've had several Messiahs in the last, uh, for a while. But um, they will believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They will call him to return. They will call him by name. He will return with the church. Big battle. A lot of stuff in Revelation happening. Sets up the kingdom. Um, thousand years. Satan is chained. People still rebel. Even though Jesus is here, there's people that are not going to believe that he is the Messiah. That's going to be... I, I just can't imagine that. But people didn't believe he was the Messiah when he was doing miracles here. So... Um, people will, and it will show you that you can't say the devil made me do it because he's literally not, he has no power at this time. So, and then of course, judgment, or a great white throne judgment eternity. So that's, that's, that's kind of concludes our review of the end times. So. All right. Feast of trumpets or festival of trumpets. And I even brought a trumpet. It's not the kind that you see that, that, you know, Ryan plays, not the gold flugelhorn, or whatever you want to call those, but uh, um, it, it's, it's a ram's horn, so we're going to talk about that. Um, other names for this feast, uh, by the way, it's Rosh Hashanah, so you probably, in the media, when they say, well, it's Rosh Hashanah, or you might open up Facebook or Reddit or something, and you'll see people saying, happy Rosh Hashanah, you know, um, it's, it's literally the new year, the new, uh, it's, it's the Jewish new year, um, but there's other names for it, shout for joy. I'm highlighting these words because the, you might see some connections to these later. A day of blowing the trumpet. Of course, day of remembrance, day of judgment. The scripture for this, uh, if you want to go back and read how God establishes this feast or this festival, it's in Leviticus 23 and, and Numbers 29. It's observed on the first of the month of Tishri. 
I think I have the months in there again. I've been keeping them in there these last three weeks now. Um, just so you can see how the... Oh, maybe. Okay, maybe I didn't put it in this week. This week. Okay, no big deal. You've got two copies of it from the last two weeks. So. All right, so it's observed on the 1st of Tishri, which is around September, October. Um, so when Rosh Hashanah starts nearing, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll probably start seeing things on the Internet or on the TV or whatever. The beginning of the civil new year. So it's basically the Jewish New Year. <clears throat> it starts, on the details of the, the festival, it actually starts the ten days of repentance, or the day, they call them the days of awe. And so there's, and again, how many days of Rosh Hashanah are there? Two. How many were there originally? One. We added, well, I say we, two, a second was added because no one's really sure if it's the first or the second day because the new moon's hard to see. So, <clears throat> especially if you have clouds like this. But um, the trumpets are, yeah, they're not the silver trumpets in the temple, but they are shofars, S-H-O-F-A-R, which are made from ram horns. I was talking about this earlier. I got this from a guy that goes to Jerusalem a couple times a year. Um, I just, I just think it's pretty cool. So I thought, you know, I've got one. I've got a trumpet. So, or well, sort of. Um, if I blow this thing in the house, the kids come running. Um, they think it's hilarious sounding. But um, there are a total of 100 trumpet blasts during the entire festival. There are four types of trumpet blasts. The tekiah, which is a just a basically a continuous note. Here, I'll just try a little bit. Oh, that's, that's basically what it is. And then you've got a combination. I'm not going to do the rest. So very small room. Combination of three. Oh, by the way, it symbolizes joy. So the first just blast. It's just a long blast, which is when people will cheer and stuff like that. And then the shevarim, which is a combination of three broken notes, which is like, da, 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 symbolizes weeping. So, the sorrow of the nation, so to speak. And then you got the truah, or the, it's a staccato. And Ryan, what's a staccato sound like? Yep. So, and these are, I've heard a few of these. If you want to go to YouTube and just search uh, um, Rosh Hashanah Trumpet Blast or um, Feast of Trumpets, Trumpet Blast, you can hear it, but uh, it's usually what they do is just a like it's basically a call to arms or a warning, symbolized warning. It's like a military blast, basically. And then the Tekiah get a law. You know what it's also called? The Last Trump. What's that make you think of? Well, we'll talk about that later. Alright, so one long final blast which serves to symbolize victory. So, yeah, it's called the last trump or the last trump trumpet. No Donald Trump jokes. Every time I say that, people are talking about, no, not what I'm talking about. So when everyone is shouting, yeah, but yeah people are shouting during this, uh, the priest lays prostrate, just flat on the ground, and pronounces the name of God. 
which raises a whole lot more questions. How does he pronounce it? Well, I'm going to talk about briefly a few ways to say the name of God, or that are the, the Bible says God. Of course, you have Abba. What's Abba mean? Daddy or father, yeah, dad. So it's just they have kids running around saying it's an Aramaic word for, Hebrew Aramaic word for daddy. Uh, Adonai, um, which is, um, yeah, it's like Father God, basically, or Father Lord. Um, El, E-L, which is just God. It's just the singular word for God. So um, Elohim is one that you've probably heard more. It's basically the plural form of God, so gods, technically. But you have, the obviously, the plural idea of the Trinity there. That there wasn't just one God there, there was three people um, at creation and so forth. Let us build, let us create man in our image, you know. So, who's the us? Well, I'll let you go back and study that. El Shaddai is another one. <clears throat> That's uh, more of a personal provider type term. Jehovah or Yehovah is another one, of course, you've probably heard. Yahweh is another one, which we'll talk about in a little more detail in a second. Um, Yeshua. I personally think that's how you're supposed to pronounce the name of God, but, you know, um, that's what they do. They pronounce the name of God. There's a lot of different ways that they say God um, in Judaism. Um, they usually don't... How many have seen that? The, so, usually if you go to, like, a Jewish website, like a non-Messianic Jewish website, or sometimes Messianic Jews, I mean, they'll have it written like this, because they don't want to say God, because His name is so um, holy. So sometimes they'll say it'll say Hashem. Which I, on off the top of my head, I can't remember what it's God something, and I can't remember what it is. But that's uh, another way they say His name. So if you see that, it just means it's just a way of um, they say His name. So uh, figure seven four, if you want to look at that. Hope I have the right number on there. Yeah. Okay. So that's how you. Uh, that's that's what YHWH or the personal name of God looks like in the original form of Hebrew, called Paleo Hebrew, or the post Babylonian captivity form of Hebrew. So it's right to left. So the first character is a yod. It looks like a little apostrophe, and then the he is the the breath sound, and then the next one is a vav. And then a hey, so Yah hey vav hey, or Yahweh is another way to pronounce it. So, <clears throat> and then of course you've got the paleo, which I like because it's it's got more recognizable symbols in it. When they were in the Babylonian captivity, the the Babylonians really changed the way they write. So um, when they went to Babylon, you know they changed their name. They changed. They tried to get the God of Israel out of them. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that's not their names. Their name was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And, of course, Daniel's name was changed to Bel Belteshazzar. Not Belshazzar, that's the other guy. But they tried to basically get the Jewishness out of them, and so a lot of things changed, including their language, the way, the, way the letters look. So, <clears throat> one thing I want to talk about, this is kind of interesting, is the epitaph on the cross, or the, the sign on the cross when Jesus was crucified. If you look at that figure 7-5, is that legible? Can you see it, or is it all black on the black and white? That's kind of it's kind of easy to see. So that's probably kind of what it looked like, 
there's uh, it may have been nailed to the cross um, <coughs> where it's believed that Jesus was actually crucified there's a rocky um, area behind it it's not like up on a hill like you picture in like the Easter cards and stuff like that it's more of like there's a road where people would walk by and behind it there's like a, a mountainous like rocky escarpment they call it um, and it's and they found these little engraved areas like these like okay so you've got you've got like um, I'll just draw it see if I can kind of illustrate it but so you know you picture you picture Jesus up on a hill with you know like that it's most likely and, and, and you know I could be wrong too that there's this road right here but it actually happened in front of this rocky area and there were there was they found cross holes in the ground um, and that they were probably done like this in the ground and they've got these rocky little holes carved out of the um, the rock in the hill um, of course there's a little this is where the little kinda look, look kinda look like a skull but um, actually it's over here but they found these little um, engraved like these carved out sections where they probably like sat signs showing their their uh, their sentence, yeah, what they were crucified for. So it could be that it was nailed to the cross. It could be that it was set on these rocky little um, placements there. So <clears throat> just a little, just throw that out there. <clears throat> so the epitaph on the cross. So I'm going to read four passages about what this said, possibly. And if you notice, they're all a little different, just a little bit, but. Some of them are, I mean, they've got the same basic idea. But in Matthew, of course, Matthew presents Jesus as what? King, king right, okay. King of the Jews. So we have his, we have his uh, genealogy as a Jewish man um, at the beginning, and, and it goes, goes on. So in Matthew 27, 37, it says, And above his head they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Okay? So in Mark, which of course presents Jesus as a servant. Servant, right? Okay. It says in Mark 15, 26, The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. So we got, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And we have the king of the Jews. Okay? No big deal. Just a little difference, you know. I mean, it's just doesn't have the same, the this is Jesus at the beginning. Just says the king of the Jews. It's really no different. It's just that this is Jesus isn't there. Now in Luke 23, 38, it says, of course, Luke presents Jesus as a man. It says now in Luke 23, 38, now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. Okay. I'm so glad I wrote that. <clears throat> okay, so just a little different, no big deal. The one I like, I mean, I, I like them all, but the one, the the last one in John is, of course, a little different. Of course, that presents Jesus as what? God, God right? So Pilate, this is John uh, 19, chapter 19, verses 19 through 22. Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified and near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Hebrew because that's the 
the religious language of the Jews at the time. Um, it would be kind of like how Catholics use Latin. They don't speak it, but they use it for religious purposes and so forth. So at the time, everyone spoke what? Greek. Greek was like the English. <clears throat> and of course, uh, Latin was rising, about to overtake the Greek language eventually. So um, it says, So the chief priests of the Jews... We're saying to Pilate, of course, if you're if you're talking to Pilate, you've got stature. You know, you don't just walk up to Pilate and just have a conversation with him. So when Joseph of Arimathea walked up to him and asked for the body, you know, he's he's got some stature or he's got some clout, you could say. <clears throat> so these these chief priests went up to Pilate and said, "Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said I am the King of the Jews." So one thing we always look in Scripture when the Jews are upset or when the religious leaders are upset. Look a little deeper because there's something possibly going on here. So I want you to look at this. Uh, so the Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Remember we talked about acrostics, the first letter of things. I want you to look and see what in Hebrew, Jesus the Nazarene, or Yeshua HaNazari, like HaYedun, says from right to left. What does it say? What's the acrostic? So Yeshua, of course, starts with a Yod. Hanasarai starts with a He. Vimelech starts with a Vav. And Hayadoim starts with a He. So you've got Y-H-W-H, or Yod, He, Vav, He. So the acrostic for Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews, actually spells the name of God. Okay, it's kind of interesting, right? What a coincidence, right? We like to say that, but um, could be nothing. I just thought I'd point that out. Kind of interesting that the chapter or the book that presents Jesus as God, has that a little differently. And it could have said that exactly like that, who knows? But I, I just think it's kind of interesting, so I thought I'd point that out. So, does that, did that make sense? You don't have questions on that? Okay. <clears throat> Alright, so moving on. Moving on with the feast. Um, traditionally, the Jews eat apple slices dipped in honey. I thought about bringing that, but I'd probably get messy really quick. I know with my two boys eating honey or anything that drips. Anyway, so the Jews eat apple slices dipped in honey, which represents provision and sweetness for the coming year. I've never eaten apples and honey. Is it good? It is? Oh, okay. Probably super sweet, because apples are already sweet. So. Alright, moving on. That was uh, Feast of Trumpets. Now we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement. And then we're going to talk about kind of how these fit with the end times. Day of Atonement, or what we call Yom Kippur. Some people call it say Yom Kippur. doesn't matter. It's all the same. Scripture is in Leviticus 23, 26 through 32. And Leviticus 16, 8 through 10, 20 through 22, and 29 through 34. <clears throat> it's observed on the 10th of Tishri. So how many days later? Alright, so it commemorates the day the high priest makes atonement for sin. <coughs> Who made atonement or payment for sin? Jesus. The priest, up until then, makes atonement for sin through these procedures. So, to symbolize what's coming, basically. So, the procedures are, it ends the ten days of repentance or awe. 
This is a very solemn day. There's a lot of procedures to get ready for this. If you're a priest, you're the busiest guy in the land right during this time. The high priest must wash himself and wear very specific linen clothing. The high priest then sacrifices a bull for his and his household's sin. So for the priest's sin and his family. The high priest enters the Holy of Holies. Now where is the Holy of Holies? See. I heard I heard a little noise, but I didn't hear back, right? The back room, right? So you got the temple. It's a really small building. Then you got the curtain here. So you go in here and you've got the menorah here, menorah here. Got the table of showbread here. Got bread on it. You got the altar of incense here. And behind here you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is of course behind the curtain. So that's the Holy of Holies, which is where the which is where God makes himself known. It's not where he physically is, because he's everywhere, but he's you could say he's making himself known there. His his visual presence was no was made known there. So <clears throat> the high priest. Sorry, I missed five. Four. The high priest enters the Holy of Holies, started reading five, and sprinkles animal blood on the east side of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you want to go back, the, the references for these, sort the sources for this are the verses that are mentioned before it. <coughs> east side of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, now, the mercy seat is different from the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the wooden box, the chest, of course, we always talk, we got to, got to mention Indiana Jones. That's a very good idea of what it probably looked like um, or looks like because there's there's some people that believe it's not destroyed. It's actually still, and we'll talk about that but if we have time. But um, <clears throat> the high priest then sprinkles the blood in front of the mercy seat seven times. But the, uh, the mercy seat is more of like a throne. It's... There's, a, there's an idea that the mercy seat is when you when you see how the blood is sprinkled at the base of it, at the feet of it, and there's also there's also some allusions to his feet being at the base of it. So it's almost like a chair. So it's like you've got the box underneath, but then you've got this golden mercy seat. You know, you sit on a seat. So it's an idea of a throne. So when you're reading the scripture, the ark is referred to differently than the mercy seat. They're they're sometimes one, they're sometimes together, but then the, when they're talked about in detail, the mercy seat's usually detailed separately from the ark. So, <clears throat> basically, the mercy seat's more important than the ark in a ways, in, in some ways. But we'll talk about that. They're both important, but yeah, they're just they're they're basically discussed separately. So, so the high priest then sprinkles the blood in front of the mercy seat seven times. Two goats are selected to be killed. Uh, that's a bad sentence. Two goats are selected to be killed. Sin offering and a living sin offering. So, to be, okay, are selected to be a killed sin offering and a living. So, I actually did it right. It just didn't look right. To be a killed sin offering and a living sin offering. Okay. By lots, one of the goats is to be sacrificed to the Lord and the other is to be the scapegoat. Very good. And of course, we talked about lots is not chance. There's no such thing as chance. 
Proverbs 16.33, of course, says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from chance, right? No, it's from the Lord. We talked about coincidence from a secular point of view means a remarkable concurrence of circumstances without apparent causal connection. So basically it just happens. No, no reason, it just happens. And then biblical coincidence is, of course, a coincidence, a concurrence of events by God's providential arrangement of circumstances. So, when you see something as simple as, I was driving down the road yesterday, and there was a song playing, and it said something about the light changing, and then the light changed, and I said, "Hey, Liam, did you see that? The light changed." When it's, you know, and he's like, "What?" And never mind. So, I mean that. Could, you know, just coincidence, right? But, you know, everything happened. That, that didn't surprise God. I'm not saying he did that for any particular reason, but it didn't surprise him. He knew it was going to happen. So, the high priest lays both hands on the scapegoat's head, confesses over it all the iniquity of the people of Israel, basically symbolically placing all the sin of the nation of Israel on his on this on the scapegoat and sends it away into the wilderness as a representation of sin being carried away forever. So that goat gets sent away. It's of course the scapegoat. So when someone says scapegoat, you can say, "Ha ha!" There's a story there, and I'm going to tell you all about it. Open your book to your Bible to Leviticus. All right, ceremonial fulfillments. When the Lamb of God died, who's that? Mm, Jesus. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. That is such a short verse, and it just goes on. But yet, the details of that from history are kind of interesting. We're going to talk about that. That's in Luke 23. So if you go to gotquestions.org, there's a nice little article about this. It says Solomon's temple was 30 cubits high, which is from 1 Kings 6, chapter 6. But Herod had increased the height to 40 cubits. According to the writings of Josephus, there is... Oh, that was according to the writings of Josephus. Um, of course, he's the first century Jewish historian. There is uncertainty as to the exact measurement of a cubit. Probably about this, or 18 inches or so. There's a royal cubit and the... I can't remember what the other one's called. A cubit and a royal cubit, maybe. Anyway. An uh, early Jewish tradition says... Oh, it's safe to assume that the veil is somewhere near 60 feet high. So an early Jewish tradition says the veil was about 4 inches thick, but the Bible does not confirm the measurement. The book of Exodus teaches that the thick veil was fashioned from blue, purple, and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. The size and thickness of the veil make the events occurring at the moment of Jesus' death on the cross so much more momentous because it says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So you get this 60, approximately 60 foot curtain. And it's not thin, most likely. It's thick. It's safe to say it's probably, they didn't just go to Hobby Lobby and buy some, you know, thin stuff and put it up there in the most sacred place in their, you know, in the world, in the universe, really. Um, but this was a very nice, thin, or thick, very tall garment, or curtain, that's torn from bottom to top, right? I mean, you got people that were down there cutting it. No, it was torn from the very top to the bottom. So, you can picture God himself going, you know, this is not important anymore. You don't, there's nothing blocking your access to God. 
So if you look at figure seven six, if you can, if, it's, if it looks all right, I don't even know what it looks like on your copy, but is it pretty bad? It's like just a black. Oh my goodness! Wow. Okay, well I'll put a nice color picture of that up on the video. Um, for you that are really close, you can see that. That's a nice. It's not a. Obviously, no one took that picture with their smartphone, but that's kind of an idea of what it probably looked like, you know, very tall, very, but again, I'll put this picture on the, on the video, um, and there's another picture down there, it's just an, just an old picture, painting or piece of art that kind of symbolizes that stuff, or shows that, maybe what it looked like, but it's a very, it's not something that could easily be done by, you know, human hands, obviously, so, and if someone was up there cutting the, the holy of holy curtain, I'm sure they didn't last very long, you know, up there, but. Okay, Jesus Christ, our high priest, entered the Holy of Holies, not by animal blood, but by his own blood, paying for, not covering, all sin. That's Hebrews 9, 11 through 28, if you want to, kind of a summary of that, so. Animal blood cannot pay for, you know, the blood of bulls and goats cannot pay for sin, <clears throat> but by Jesus' own blood he paid for he didn't cover our sin, he paid for it. It's done. Alright, moving on. Feast of Booths, or Sukkot. Another name would be Fe Festival of Tabernacles. I'm going to kind of speed it up a little here, because we'll probably have questions later, maybe. But we've got a little bit more to cover, so. Alright. Scriptures, Leviticus 23, verse 33 through 43. It's observed on the 15th to the 22nd of Tishri, which is, again, September or October, and it's uh, for eight days. Or the, from the 15th is for eight days, yeah. Commemorates the 40-year wilderness journey and God's provision. Okay, so I'm going to read some details from jewishvoice.org. There's, there's the website, you want to check it out. During Sukkot, God instructs Jewish families to leave the comfort of their homes and live in booths, end quote, so your generations may know that I am the, I had the sons of uh, Israel to dwell in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, and that's Leviticus 23, verse 43. Rabbinic tradition says that a sukkah, or a booth, can be three-sided with walls constructed by any material. The roof, however, must be made from organic matter such as leafy branches. Really hope it doesn't rain, right? <clears throat> so booths of Sukkot provide a tangible reminder of how our Jewish ancestors lived in the wilderness. Through the loosely woven roof, one can look up and see the night sky, remembering God's promise to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars. Not the suns. Sorry. <laughs> These booths also remind us how God took care of the Israelites during their years of wandering. He fed them with manna from heaven, gave them sweet water from a rock, and kept their shoes and clothing from wearing out for 40 years. Today, Jewish people around the world build sukkot in their backyards or on balconies, taking their evening meals, relaxing, entertaining guests, and even sleeping there. Sukkot are often decorated by hanging fresh fruit from the ceiling as a symbol of God's provision and care. During synagogue services, special ceremonies and prayers are performed, including a waving a lulav bouquet, a gathering of leafy branches made from four specific species outlined in Leviticus 23.40. The grouping includes a citrus-like fruit called the etrog, 
lulav or palm branches, willows called aravot, aravot, sorry, and a myrtle. All right, so it observe, observers build temporary shelters or booths. <clears throat> or tents, but very temporary tents. Rain should enter, the stars can be seen, and the wind can blow through. It's a camping trip, basically. According to Leviticus 23, four plants are required to cover the booths. Do you have blanks on the plants here? No, okay, good. I think I did it first and then I said, no, I'm not going to be that mean. So, so you got a, the, the Leviticus 23.40 says, Now on the day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And then on Nehemiah 8.15 it says, So they proclaim and circulate, circulated a proclamation in their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. And there you go are the four different types of plants and some characteristics about them that are kind of interesting. So the willow has no smell and no fruit. The myrtle has smell but no fruit. They're, they're good smells, by the way. The palm has no smell, but does bear fruit. And the citrus, of course, does smell and bears fruit. So you got, you got a lesson in, in itself right there. There were two ceremonial events on the last day of the festival. The lights around the temple are, symbol, are symbolic of the Messiah. That's in Isaiah 49.6. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Israel and bring back those of Jacob I have preserved. I'll also make you a light to the nations, to be my salvation, or to be my Yeshua, to the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 49.6. Golden lampstands were lit in the temple courtyard. What else are lampstands called? Menorah. Yeah, that's the Hebrew word for lampstand. Golden lampstands were lit in the temple courtyard. People carrying torches marched around the temple. The water taken to the temple symbolizes the Messiah, symbolizing the Messiah. And that's Isaiah 11.9, which says, They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And a priest carried the water from Siloam to the temple. Next week we're going to go into detail about the temple, the law, and the Ark of the Covenant. How those are pictures or types of Jesus as well. And uh, when Jesus attended the festival of tabernacles, on the last day of the festival, he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, because he's the living water. So the water symbolizes Jesus. The next morning when the torches were still burning, or the lights, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not, you can picture him saying this stuff and pointing at the, these uh, 
characteristics of these things around them that are the people are celebrating these festivals and going, hey, that that's me. That's that that symbolizes me. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right. So, do the fall festivals fit eschatology from a prophetic point of view? So, do the fall festivals fit the end times? The first three were fulfilled at Jesus's first coming. The you could say the middle one or the fourth one um, was fulfilled by the church, and of course, the last three will possibly be fulfilled at his second coming or around there. So the festival of trumpets, could this be the rapture of the church? Now, question marks here, that means don't don't go to your calendars and circle uh, Feast of Trumpets, rapture? You know, don't, don't do that. Don't start setting dates. There's a lot of people that do this, a lot of churches that do this, and they lose focus on what they're really supposed to be doing instead of just going, okay, it's going to be this year, you know, let's, you know. So rapture of the church, the, the last trump, and then a shout, because, you know, in, in these passages about the, uh, the Thessalonians passage, you've got the, at the last trump, and they shout with the archangel, and so on and so forth. So the 70th week of Daniel begins sometime after this event. Okay, so... Again, this is just, could it be? Maybe. Don't don't bet on this stuff. It's just maybe. Yom Kippur, atonement for, who, who is the focus uh, on in the tribulation period, the seven years, the last week? Israel. Israel. So could this be an atonement? Could the Yom Kippur feast symbolize, I mean, it's it's a very solemn, sad feast because you're dealing with sin. So the tribulation is a very sad time, very bad time. Um, so there's there's many that believe that maybe Yom Kippur symbolizes, could be fulfilled all the, just like Jesus fulfilled the first three literally, maybe he's going to fulfill the last three, or sorry, first four literally, maybe he's going to fulfill the last three literally the same way. I, I believe so. I don't know exactly how, but it's fun to talk about. <clears throat> so, atonement for Israel? Maybe. According to Daniel 9, there's a firm covenant with many for one week. Might allude to the temple system resuming, because there's going to be a what in the... What are the Jews going to be doing? There's going to be a what? Temple, and the this Antichrist, or last world leader, is going to be setting up his idol in that temple. So there's no, they've been talking about building a new temple for decades now. Um, there's, there's many preparations being made for it. Um... They have, I think, 10 or 20 um, red heifer cows. Anyone heard about this? Yeah, and I think they came from Texas, didn't they? Um, That they have, to to rededicate a temple, you have to, if you go back to Leviticus, um, you have to have a red heifer, spotless red heifer. Um, The the ashes of it, when you sacrifice it, are going to cleanse the temple. So, so... They've been talking about it. There's a place in Israel, in Jerusalem, called the Temple Institute. They've built everything they need for the temple. They've got the the garments. They've got the their training priests. They've got the silver trumpets. They've got the menorah, beaten out of pure gold. Um, they've got everything but an Ark of the Covenant. You need an Ark of the Covenant in the temple. So we'll talk about that maybe next week. Well, definitely next week. I don't know if we'll have time today. <clears throat> so. 
Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, sorry. According to Daniel 9, a third covenant might allude to the temples of, yeah, resuming 10 days after the trumpets of rapture. So maybe church is gone, and then 10 days later, something sparks the, okay, let's finally build this temple. All these Christians are gone. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but maybe. Because Yom Kippur starts 10 days after. So maybe, and because when we talk about Daniel 9, we tend to go to the peace treaty. Well, it doesn't say peace treaty. That's that's actually, I, I personally believe that the peace treaty thing, which it, it might be a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, but that, I think, rises out of some of the fictional stories about, like the Left Behind series. There's there's a peace treaty involved. There There's talk about, well, the, the Antichrist will destroy many with peace. So I think that's where that comes from, but we don't really know exactly what's going to uh, start. I personally think it has something to do with the temple, because you've got a temple work system going, and then three and a half years later, what happens? Puts up his idol, and you could say all hell breaks loose. It gets really, really bad. The last three and a half years are the worst. So, first three and a half years will likely be relatively peaceful. Last three and a half years, and, and again, there's a temple system, so... I personally think there's going to be something related to the temple happen at the start of this, but who knows? We won't be here to watch it. We'll be watching it from the, you could say, the mezzanine, I guess. <clears throat> so, another possible rapture date for the Festival of Tabernacles? Maybe. Who knows? Don't set dates. We're going to talk about that. Transitioning from temporary to permanent dwellings? Could be. Maybe the Feast of Tabernacles is when the rapture happens. Who knows? I'm not saying it is. I don't know. It's just something to think about. Don't again. Don't set dates. Start of the millennium or the kingdom, maybe. And you can you can take Matthew thirteen. The branches are. There's an interesting parallel between the tabernacle branches that are that we mentioned earlier um, in the first kingdom parable. So maybe something that you can do your own little study on that. That's it for all the festivals. So we got a Hamoyedim review here. The first three spring festivals were fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming to the day. <clears throat> the fourth festival was fulfilled by the Holy Spirit with the beginning of the church to the day. See where I'm getting at here? Why won't the last three be fulfilled to the day? They may not. But it seems as if that's kind of the pattern here. And God is very specific in throughout all the scripture. So maybe, who knows. The, it is likely that the last three festivals will be fulfilled by future apocalyptic events. Will they all three be fulfilled in the eternal state? Maybe, who knows, I don't know. It seems as though, though, based on how he's, already, how he's fulfilled the first four, that they're possibly going to be, I personally think he, I don't think he's going to change the way he operates, but he might, I mean, I'm just saying. <clears throat> so a summary of this, uh, of this particular study is that the festivals of Moses, well, of all three, the festivals of Moses are commemorative of Israel's history. The last three fall festivals will be fulfilled by Jesus Christ in the future to the day of his choosing. 
So we could say to the day, we could say it will be on the festival dates, but ultimately it will be the day he chooses. So we can only speculate sort of thing. We shouldn't set dates for these events. Highlight that, circle it, remember, remind yourself not to go home and say, when is, when is uh, trumpets and when is, you know, September, October, let's find the date because that's when the rapture is going to happen. No, please don't do that. <clears throat> it distracts believers from the Great Commission, and we should expect Jesus at any moment. The rapture, I mean, people that's what people will say if you start sending dates. Well, we don't know when the rapture is going to happen. Right. But we don't know that it's not going to happen on any of these dates. But it may not happen on the, you see what I mean? So we don't know because it doesn't say, hey, the rapture is going to happen on this date or that date. But we, we need to expect it, basically. So, any moment. Alright, your memory verse is a tough one. 1 Corinthians 4.18. Not Oh, Thessalonians, I did it again. 1 Thessalonians 4.18. You've got Colossians 2.16 and 17 on there. Oh, do I? Oh, sorry. Write 1 Thessalonians 4.18. You can mark those out. I mean, well, don't mark them out. I mean, you can you can memorize them if you want. But you will be you're on the quiz will be 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And that's it. So, just remember to be comforted with these words. Be comforted with these words because you're going to go through the tribulation, the worst period in history, right? No.